You can open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 11. That's where we kind of start. I have a couple of books that uh, kind of uh, center on the King James Bible. This is called Purified Seven Times by evangelist Bill Bradley. Uh, he's related to Dennis Corll, but don't, don't hold that against him. It's an in-law type of thing. So anyhow, it's a great book. It's a concise history of, the, uh, of our English Bible, kind of... Uh, Gives you a little bit more detail than what I'm going to give you in the next 25, 35 minutes, it looks like. So, And then this one's by an old preacher friend of mine named John Wesley Sawyer. He's an old trooper, and what a godly man. It's called The Legacy of Our English Bible. And I always tell preachers, you should buy this before your people do, because it's loaded. It's got all kind of little anecdotes, stories that come up in the history of our Bible, and so forth. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 11. I spent some time preaching the other night, and hopefully it got across a little, a little bit of time I spent on inspiration and preservation, so that much can be um, removed from this morning. Amen? We won't have to spend much time with that. Hopefully, uh, I believe we all are pretty confident that we have an inspired Bible, and our King James Bible is a perfectly preserved Bible. But what I need to make sure you know is that when God gave the Bible by inspiration, it was not in the English language. We didn't have an English Bible until the 14th century. But in Hebrews chapter number 11 is a, a kind of a ground, a starting ground for us. You know, Hebrews 11 is called the Hall of Faith. There's 16 different souls that are named uh, from chapter, chapter 11, verse 1, down to verse 32, Adam and Enoch and Noah and, and Abram and, and so forth. And there's even several women that are named. So women are in the hall of faith as well. But when you get down to verse 32, it ends. And verse 33, it says this, Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. You can see that that's um, in reference to Daniel. Verse 34, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, and turned to flight the armies of the aliens. And that's probably in reference to Samson. But in verse 35, something else takes place. Women received their dead raised to life again, and others were tortured. That's the others we're going to be talking about today, those heroes down through the centuries that preserved God's word and the message. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others, verse 36, had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. I always hesitate right here to answer any question that might be milling around in your head that what's so bad about wandering around in a sheepskin and a goatskin? Well, what they would do is uh, to torture. It's amazing that um, our ancestors, this is, uh, and I'm referring to our European ancestors, where most of us came from, uh, they studied torture. They were good at it. They were kind of like the Romans that were good at crucifying. They, their whole aim of crucifixion was not just shame, but torture. And it was to prolong the suffering. By 
taking a new, uh, newly slain sheep or a goat, and you men know what I'm talking about. If you've ever skinned a deer, you get that, when you finally get that skin off of that deer, there's moisture on that thing. It's wet. But suppose you soaked it in, in water even further and then stretched it and then stitched it around the arms of, a, of the torso of an individual and sewed it up tight. And then they released them into that desert of the Mideastern arid climate. And then that leather begins to shrink. Their hands are trapped inside. And the life is literally crushed out of them. They can't eat. They can't drink. If they go down to the earth, they're not going to be able to get back up. That's what that means. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins. Why? Because they believed in Jesus Christ. And they preached the gospel and they carried the message. And this is what the world thought of them in verse 38. Of whom the world was not worthy. You know, I've known some saints of God that this world did not deserve to know. They were too high and holy, too godly. And the world just scorned, laughed and mocked. Of course, Jesus would be the featured one of that description. The world's not worthy of Jesus. This creation of his that scorns him and turns their back on him and curses him and mocks. I mean, they did it around the cross, but they still do it today of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. And verse 40 is a real puzzle to me. I've never figured that verse out, but I'm sure it has some depth to it. I want to climb into that one of these days and try to figure out what it's talking about. But... But uh, it's enough to know that there were some saints that were slain for the glory of God, but to, to their shame by those that hated God's word and the message. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time today. Father, thank you for these that have gathered this morning. Lord, we're here in thy name. The only reason we're here is because of Jesus Christ and the gospel and his love that compels us to come to church on Sunday and thank him. Not only for his marvelous grace, but for his goodness. Lord, thank you for this Bible that you place in our arms, our hands. The English-speaking world is privileged beyond all others that we have the inerrant word of God. But it was made possible by the blood of the martyrs, and many that gave their life, so that we could have what we have today. I pray you'd help us to grow in our devotion and appreciation. For this great book, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I said, the Bible was given in Hebrew. There was a somewhat decent translation. Um, I, I guess it go with the philosophy, something is better than nothing. And that's what they had in the Latin Vulgate. That was done in the 4th century by St. Jerome. And a lot of people relied on that for a long, long time. From, from uh, three, I think it was mid-300s up until um, almost the end of the 14th century. They relied on St. Jerome's Latin Vulgate. That was the only uh, translation that the Roman Catholic Church would uh, allow. They, they kind of confirmed it. And so for a preacher boy to go to Bible college, uh, like at Oxford, that's where John Wycliffe was, and 
to go to that college, the first thing you had to do was to learn, study Latin. Learn to speak and to read Latin so that you could read the Bible, the only Bible that was allowed. Uh, Rome destroyed 500, over 500 translations. Now, we're not talking about 500 Bibles. 500 language groups that had a translation of the Bible. Rome destroyed them. I think there's a curse on that. <laughs> well, let, me, let me just put this in your head and start wondering about, uh, suppose now, you see, what a, you see what the Bible did for America? We became the greatest nation on this earth because of God's word. We're the most benevolent, uh, the most charitable, the most giving. You go to other countries and some of you have traveled, you'll find there's liars there, <laughs> crooks. They don't have uh, uh, an equal system of weights and measures. Um, I mean, even in Jesus' day, they didn't have that. But we do in America. We have a standard. We have a standard, uh, you know, of uh, how much a pound actually is, how long a foot is, how long a yard is. We, we know that we have a standard, and you can, quick it, you can quickly uh, confirm that. It's all because of the Bible. Believe it or not, that's, that's why it's there. Uh, there, there was a Christian conscience in America that has grown even today. I mean, even the lost world, they don't want to be uh, snookered, so to speak. They don't want to get gypped. When they go into that hardware store and they buy a pound of nails, they, they trust those scales to be accurate. They don't want to be promised something. You know, I, here, I'm buying a life insurance policy. And so when you're dead and gone, then your family benefits from that. If they were crooks, they, won't, they don't last long in America. It's, it, it's that, it just translates all across the board. You don't have that in other countries. Very few of them, actually, especially third world nations. So you, you're taking a big chance over there to, to buy anything. Uh, but uh, in, in Oxford, uh, Wycliffe was the preacher. He was a leading theologian of his day, a brilliant, brilliant man. And he was uh, teaching and training these young people that sat at his feet. He was teaching them uh, the truths and the doctrines of the Word of God. And those boys had to learn the Latin. That was the only Bible available. But one day, um, Mr. Oxford wrote a thesis and uh, printed it. And it was rebuking the Pope of Rome. It rebuked Catholicism because of its lies and all the deception, and we can't go into that. That would take three semesters, would it not, Brother Max, to, <laughs> to expose all the lies of Rome and the filth? You would not believe all this stuff. Have you ever looked into history? What is it called? The, uh, the two Babylons. I think that'll cover it for you if you want to get your head wrapped around that. But honestly, it's probably not worth your while unless you're, you know, an addiction to uh, history. But... but uh, uh, Mr. Wycliffe rebuked it strongly. And you know what that got him? That got him fired. <laughs> I mean, they were woke back in the 14th century, weren't they? <laughs> and he said, they said, Wycliffe, that's too much. You've gone too far. You've overstepped your bounds. And so they fired him. So he went back to his hometown where he grew up in Lutterworth, England. And the pulpit there was empty, so he took over as the pastor. When those boys came to college that next term, they said, we want to sign up for Brother Wycliffe's classes Back then, you didn't pay tuition, you didn't get a, a, a Pell Grant, you didn't get a, it was a Stafford loan, or you didn't get that. You bought a ticket every day to go into the class. 
You had to have a ticket. That's how you got in. If you didn't have a ticket, you didn't get in. Well, they didn't have to buy tickets anymore when they found out that Oxford, that Oxford had fired Wycliffe. They said, where is he? Well, he's down in Lauderworth pastoring a church. They said, bye-bye. <laughs> they didn't come there to play football or basketball or, you know, lac- what is that? These Duke boys got in trouble with lacrosse or something. Uh, they, they didn't come there for that. They came there to hear John Wycliffe, the leading theologian of, of uh, his day. So they went down there, sat in a pew, got to hear him for nothing. Amen. How about that? So uh, that's where they learned. And, and, and Wycliffe did a tremendous job of teaching these young men. I'm going to learn about that. But one Sunday, Mr. Wycliffe collapsed in the pulpit, had a stroke. His men carried him right next door. was a parsonage. That was a common thing. And they laid him in his little cot there. And for several days, he never uttered another word, finally passed on into eternity. But the Pope wasn't happy with his death. The Pope wanted him to be shamed. They wanted to destroy his influence. And so the Pope commanded from Rome that his body be dug up from the grave. They wanted to burn his bones. And uh, they figured that they burned him, burned his body, that would surely condemn him to hell. I don't know where they get that twisted notion from, but it's Catholics, okay? <laughs> They're about as uh, spirit, scriptural as a Mormon, you know. They, they have, there's nothing to it. It's, it's all made up. They call it liturgy, so they give it a $5 word, but it means nothing. Just give me this old King James Bible, okay? <laughs> that, that, that's all we need. If it's not there, we don't, we don't want anything to do with it. Well, it took them 11 years, but finally there were enough uh, in the population to obey the Pope's decree, and they dug up the bones of Wycliffe, and they burned them to ashes. And then they decided to pour those ashes into the river so they would be strong apart. And the Catholics then thought that would de- destroy any chance for his resurrection. There we go. <laughs> There again, it's got got no more theology to that than Mr. Wimpy on Popeye buying hamburgers on Tuesday. It's ridiculous. It's just so stupid. Where do they get this? God created man out of the dust of the earth. What makes them think he can't resurrect those ashes and reassemble that in in glory, give him a glorified body? Well, their, their hope was to destroy the influence of Wycliffe. But it's symbolic what they did. They poured his ashes into the River Swift, and the River Swift flowed into the River Avon. The River Avon then flowed into the River Severn, and the Severn River emptied into the British Channel, which emptied into the Atlantic Ocean, which touches every shore, as did the influence of John Wycliffe. They didn't destroy anything. His influence grew, in fact, so much so that a fellow named John Huss 50 years later, who had followed the teachings of Wycliffe. And uh, uh, he was preaching there in the city of Prague, where he's from. That's a major city now in, in Czechoslovakia. But back then, it was a leading city. And John Huss was preaching so vehemently on the street corners that a riot broke out. They wanted to silence him, and they eventually did. They put him to death. But... Uh, that's what happened. So his, this was 45 years later uh, after Wycliffe was dead. These young men that um, 
Wycliffe taught in the Bible school there at Oxford, and then later on in his own pulpit, these young men were preacher boys. Uh, their, their aim was to get out there and preach the gospel in the highways and the hedges. Well, it broke Wycliffe's heart because he didn't have time to teach them all Latin. He was not a Latin instructor. And these boys wanted to get out there and go. And so they would go, but then they would get into controversy because they didn't have all the answers. They couldn't read the Bible. And so Wycliffe prayed, God, help me with this. These boys, gotta, they've got to learn Latin. <laughs> and the Lord impressed him. No, they don't. They already know English. Just give them an English Bible. And so he began to translate. And it took him months and months and years and years to get it translated, but he finally got it done. He translated the English Bible, and then he had a problem of getting it printed. Well, there was no printing press. Gutenberg wasn't even born yet. And so he took the people from his church and into his little home, that little cottage. They'd light the candles early and then burn the oil way into the wee hours of the night. And those that could write legibly would copy the Word of God by hand. That probably uh, did not include the men. Most men can't write legibly. But anyhow, uh, uh, there were probably some, no doubt. But anyhow, that's whoever could write legibly, they copied it by hand. The others would proofread. Some would stitch those pages together. Some would have leather prepared to bind that book with a leather cover. Then they would take those Bibles and put them in the hands of those young preacher boys who came to be known as Lollards. And they put them, that Bible in their hands and they could go out in the highways and the hedges and preach the gospel. It was an amazing thing because England was getting saved. There were men and women, boys and girls, hearing the gospel for the first time. They'd been under the lies of Rome all these years. But now they're hearing the truth of the gospel. Just put your faith in Jesus Christ, for by grace you are saved through faith. Not of works, lest any man should boast. If you've been taught differently from that, if you're visiting today or listening in, you're saved by grace, not, not by works. That's so plain in the Bible. Well, uh, these Lollard boys, uh, they would preach up and down the highways and the hedges. But they were taught four powerful lessons by Mr. Wycliffe before he died. They taught, he taught them, number one, how to live, that they were to work and earn their own way. They were not to be beggars and vagrants. And this gave these young men a proud and noble ethic. It became part of their living standard that they could carry their heads high knowing that uh, God was going to provide through their own uh, physical ability and also for, through the gifts of others. He taught them his doctrine. It was Wycliffe, as I said, the leading theologian in Great Britain. And uh, they were attracted to this teacher because of his godly preaching and teaching. And it was these students of Wycliffe that learned his doctrine so well that they stopped the lies of Rome from circulating freely in their day. And the nation was awakening to the truth. Thirdly, he taught them to reproduce themselves uh, in, uh, in terms of soul winning. They were to go out and get people saved and not only get them saved, get these young men trained and get them discipled. You know, that's a, probably one of the greatest um, faults that we have is when we get people saved, they don't get discipled. 
It's so important to teach them. I mean, you got discipled because you're here today. If you're tithing, you've been discipled. If you're faithful, if you're serving, you've been discipled. Somehow, how did that happen? Well, that's what we have to do for others. And that's what these young men did. They were so effective that uh, not only was Huss a part of that movement 50 years after Wycliffe was dead, they said that uh, 10 years after his death, if you met two men in England, one of them was a Lollard. They, the Bishop Tunstall, who we'll find out a little bit more in a little bit, he was complaining to Erasmus when Tyndale translated his New Testament from the Greek Texas Receptus. He, Tunstall said that Erasmus, I'm sorry, Tyndale's New Testament was adding fuel to the Lollards. This was 145 years after Wycliffe was dead. That's when Tyndale came along. So I'd say they were pretty successful in reproducing themselves, discipling saints. But the last main lesson that he taught them was to, to teach them how to die. These young men knew that their training would ultimately put them in a martyr's grave, and it did. So many were killed in one town. They named the place of execution the Lollard's Pit. In London, they were put to death at a place called Smithfield. There's a brass plaque there now that you can read that, this, that all these tortures took place. It's a beautiful, decorated and set up uh, as a kind of a city, little city park type of thing. But back in those days, that grass was stained red with the blood of those men that died on those stakes that were, they were burned to death. There were so many... Uh, there, were, there were so many burned to death uh, during the St. Bartholomew's Day festivities. Now, St. Bartholomew's Day, Bartholomew's Day is confused. Uh, we think about the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre. That didn't happen in England. That happened in France. That, that book, The Cross and Crown, describes how that happens, that, where uh, the Catholics killed 7,000 Huguenots in one night. They had arranged for a big capital marriage and a Huguenot prince was going to marry the, uh, a Catholic queen or a princess. And they staged this whole thing in Paris and they had all the homes marked where the Huguenots were staying. And at midnight, the priests were ringing the bells and to signal for the soldiers to go into those homes and take those people. And kill. They, were, they were killing everybody, men, women, boys and girls. There was babies dragged down the street with ropes around their neck little children dragging those babies to the river and slinging those babies into the, into the river to their death. That was St. Bartholomew's Day massacre that took place in Paris. But I, I don't know much about St. Bartholomew, but he, he must not have been a good guy. Everything was revolving around death and murder with, with him. And I, so I, I'm not a, I never was a Catholic. I didn't hang around with too many of them either. But St. Bartholomew, this festivity was a week long at, at, in London. They had a big deal, a picnic and probably a pie-eating contest, maybe hot dogs, whatever. I don't know. They just, it, was a, it was a week-long festivity. Maybe they had races and contests and all kinds of things. But the highlight of the week was the burning of the Lollards. I mentioned our depraved ancestors. And by the way, we're the same way. Uh, we're, we're, we're depraved. We're, we're lost without Jesus Christ. We're just as wicked, just as hell-bound as our ancestors were. But can you imagine, you, you mamas, packing a, a, a picnic basket with sandwiches and fruit and whatever else you could put together uh, for your family and telling the kids, 
All right, kids, get ready, uh, get cleaned up. Got to load the wagon. We're all going down to the festivity today because today we don't want to miss it. It's the burning of the Lollards. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Taking your kids down to watch the, the, these saints be burned to death. That's, that's pretty depraved. That's, that's way out there. I can't imagine a death more grievous, more heinous than to be burned at the stake you know, um, you've all stood around a campfire, an open fire, and as the wind shifts throughout the day, the flames will mount up on one side and then the wind will turn and then the flames will mount up on the other side and and these boys were cabled or stay, somehow chained to these to these pillars. Now, if they had a lot of them, why they would put the fuel down, or the, the the wooden sticks, the, the whatever they had, the kindling, and they would pour oil on it so it would burn faster because they had so many to burn. But if they only had a few that year, why they would actually moisten the kindling so it wouldn't burn so fast, so they get more time to watch them burn. I mean, you talk about the depths of depravity. These, these people are wicked, man. That's way down there. There was one fellow that was burning so profusely on his left arm and he was able to reach across with his right and pull his arm from his body and drop it outside the flames to get a little bit of relief. There was a young man named John Lambert who was an eloquent preacher. He finally was captured and while he was burning at the stake, he was so eloquent, he was preaching, praising God. He would raise his voice and he would sing to the glory of God. And the people, they were just enthralled by his abilities and they began to applaud. And all ten of his fingers were burning. He raised his hands as best he could. He said, no, none but Christ, none but Christ. He wasn't dying for self-glory. He was not trying to make a name for himself. He was dying for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Would to God we had more people that had that motivation. Well, later on, the 15th century come along, there was a fellow named Gutenberg. We already mentioned him. Gutenberg invented, he's the inventor of movable type. Uh, probably one of the greatest inventions of all time, other than the wheel. <laughs> you know, the discovery of fire, that was a pretty good one. Light bulbs. And uh, some, it was one of those, it was life-changing for everybody. It changed history. But Gutenberg was a 10-year-old kid. His dad was uh, a dad just like some of you dads, you know, if you got a house full of youngins or if you got a wife that has a credit card, <laughs> you have to work two or three jobs to meet all the bills. And, and uh, so anyhow, this, uh, his daddy worked another job, but he also worked as a, as a carver, a uh, woodworker down at this, um, this printing shop. Now, a printing shop back then is nothing like we have today, Brother Max. Nothing. That, that, they would take a flat block of wood, sand it completely flat, get it completely level, and then they would carve out on that block of wood the image that they wanted to print. But they had to carve everything in reverse. All the type, if there was any text on it, 
the pictures, everything had to be backwards. Can you imagine how many trial and errors they went through to get that thing straight? <laughs> On the very last thing, the guy discovers, oh, brother, I spelled it wrong. <laughs> you know? Well, then they would take that block of wood, and they'd roll ink on that. Then they would take a piece of paper and lay it on top of that. And then they had a, a screw press, was a shaft, a, a screw, and a plate. And then they would screw it. As they screwed it, it would lower down. They'd yeah, get good, and then they'd undo it like that and peel it up and then pull the paper off, and ta-da, there they go. I'll tell you, that's no way to print a book. Uh, so, anyhow, uh, Gutenberg, little Johann Gutenberg was in the shop with his dad watching him do his woodwork and all that. And one day he had a little knife and a piece of wood. He was cutting, trying to make a little, little image, a little of an animal or something. And it slipped out of his hands. It dropped in a puddle of ink, and he, he was so disappointed. He wanted to get that ink off of there. And so he found some a scrap of paper, and he began to just try to stamp it to get that ink off of there. But he noticed every image was exactly the same. And in that 10-year-old brain, the thought came, I wonder if I could do that with the alphabet. And by the time he was 21 years old, he had perfected movable type. Now, his motivation was not to sell advertisements and print newspapers and magazines, not even books. It was only one book that he wanted to print, and that was the Bible. He said this, this is a quote from Gutenberg, Let us break the seal which holds the holy things. Give wings to the truth that by means no longer written of great expense, by the hand that wearies itself, but multiplied by an unwavered, unwearied machine, it may fly to every soul born in the world. That's pretty good motivation. Now, there's two events that happened in the middle of the 15th century. At about the same time Gutenberg was coming along, there was also the fall of Constantinople. And please don't start yawning. It's, it's history. It's boring. But it's important what happened. The fall of Constantinople, and, and uh, I know I'm, I'm going to climb on the, more, the Muslim carcasses for a few seconds, but the Muslim world was gaining impetus at that time. Uh, they were taking over lands, and especially up at Constantinople. Constantinople went through so many names. It was Antioch, it was Byzantium. Uh, I don't know what it is today, Istanbul, I guess. Uh, it had all kinds of names because every time there was a new emperor or a king, he renamed the city because it was a great city. But Constantinople uh, was being overthrown by the Muslims. The, the Muslim Turks came in and they were just robbing, raping, stealing, pilfering, everything. That's, by the way, that's pretty much their mode. That's how they work. They still work the same way. You'll notice as you study history and civilization that everywhere the Muslims went, civilization went backwards. Uh, look, at his, look at Afghanistan today and Iran. They still live like they're in the second century. It's ridiculous. Except they all have a cell phone and a laptop. You know, that's the only difference. They still live out in Bedouin tents. It's, it's ridiculous. Crazy the way that they live. But that's the way they'd have the world living if they could have their way. So as they came in, anybody that had a brain, anybody that had uh, any ability, anybody that had education, anybody that had hope for their family and, and perhaps a business, they stacked their wagons like the Beverly Hillbillies and they headed out of there. They wanted to go where civilization had advanced. And so many of them wound up in Europe and some of them wound up in Paris. They put their children in school at, at, in Paris, at the University of Paris, and there was a fellow teaching there by the name of Desiderius Erasmus. 
Desiderius Erasmus was from Rotterdam, and uh, he taught Greek. Uh, he taught the old Greek and the new Greek. He, he was a brilliant man. He was widely known for his brilliance and his writings, his works. Uh, he had access uh, all, all over the, 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 the parts of Europe there. Every library, every educational center, they knew him. They, they let him in. Well, uh, these kids that came in from Byzantium down there, or Constantinople, whatever it was at the time, uh, they were Greeks. For the most part, they were, they were Grecian. And as they sat at the feet of Erasmus, they looked at one another and said, wow, that, that, that Greek sounds like the Greek that great-grandma used to speak. That sounds like those documents that great-grandma had and great-grandpa. So they went home and they plundered through their old things and found some of those copies of, of old, old Greek manuscripts. And they brought them into Erasmus. They said, here, teacher, look at these. Great-grandma had these. These are from way back, like in the 6th century. He began to look at these manuscripts. He discovered there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Romans, Corinthians, Acts, all of them. He found old, old, old 6th century copies of the New Testament. And because of his access to all those famous museums and libraries in the world, he was able to compile between five and 6,000 manuscripts and then compare them diligently and found that they were in agreement 96% of the time. And from that, he assembled what we call the Textus Receptus, which means the received text. The Textus Receptus then became the foundation of our King James New Testament. And he published it. He published a book, a bilingual book, half in Latin. Or No, he had the, the, the Bible in Latin and the Bible in Greek. And he published it. Well, the king of England didn't like it, so he forbid it in his nation. Nobody could have it. But there was a guy there running around, and he was a student actually at Cambridge. His name was Thomas Bilney. And he's one of those guys, if you ever taught school or taught Sunday school, you always got one of these in the class that rules. <laughs> rules were made to be broken. <laughs> and that was Thomas Bilney. And so he said, I'm going to get one of those Bibles and see what's so bad about it. And he did. He got a hold of Erasmus uh, uh, Greek text, that uh, bilingual text. He began to read it. He discovered salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He was gloriously saved. And he went down to the White Horse Inn where the professors at Cambridge would meet after classes. And he began to show them this writing uh, this translation of the Greek text. And one by one, he was leading those professors to the Lord. They came to realization that salvation was by grace through faith. So you see what's happening in England. Some of the people in higher up education, that gospel spread amongst them. Out in the fields, the peasants, the wide and far places, the lollers had already won them, put them, gave them the gospel. And revival is about to break out in England. Well, Bilney was finally captured and burned at the stake, but he had a young man that was following him around, listening to his lectures, actually carrying his luggage. They're called a lackey. Uh, it's just a, like a bellboy. He, he was carrying the luggage and helping Mr. Bilney because he was going everywhere uh, preaching and teaching. Well, that young man's name was William Tyndale. William Tyndale was a Greek scholar, 
Not only that, he had mastered seven languages, they said so fluently that you could not tell his mother tongue. And uh, so he got excited about this Greek text by Erasmus. He said, my goodness, maybe I could translate that into English. And so that's what we began to work on. He was a tutor in the home of a family by the name of Walsh. And uh, he was tutoring their children. And then in the evenings, he was working on this New Testament from the Greek Texas Receptus. Well, he began to wonder, maybe this is endangering to this family. So he went down to England or to London and tried to get permission from uh, Bishop Tunstall and Bishop Tunstall told him, no, you can cease and desist and destroy what you've done. Well, Tyndale said, no, I can't do that. So he went back home and told the family, he said, I'm going to have to leave. I'm going to get out of here. And he exiled himself to Germany and finished the work. He got over there and ran into a fellow named Martin Luther, who had already done it with the German Bible. German's first translation, one of the people that knows a little bit about that, um, said that that was a perfect translation done by Martin Luther. Not talking about Martin Luther King. Let's please not confuse him. Martin Luther lived in the 15th century, 16th century. He he um, translated that in 1516. And uh, uh, so anyhow, he and Tyndale got together, and he advised him. He said, "I know where some people are that can print for you. you now they they do things. They'll do things for you." And so they did. He Tyndale got his work done. He went to these printers. And, of course, when it was discovered, they would come to those printers and try to take those documents and destroy them. One print shop was burning, and when Tyndale found out about it, he ran in there and grabbed all that he could carry just in his arms and fled and hid out in the woods until the dust kind of settled. You know, that's um, that's kind of makes me curious as to all the things that God did to preserve this Bible. Here's Tyndale carrying... The whole New Testament in his arms, fleeing for his life with the threat of destruction. Well, he got it done. And then he got it printed. The other problem that he faced was to getting it back into England because it was not welcome in England. And so he went down to the waterfront and discovered the ships coming and going all the time from Germany. And there were ships heading back to England. So he talked to those mariners and they said, sure, we can help you. We can probably fit at least two or three of those New Testaments inside these sacks of flour. We can smuggle them in. And so Tyndale had contacts on the other side to receive it. And, and that's how they got God's word back into England for a while. Not, not for long, but it, it happened for a while. There was another guy, there's a great story about another guy that was hired by uh, England to destroy these Bibles. And it's fascinating because he kind of liked Tyndale. He liked what he was doing. And so uh, he would buy those copies of Tyndale's uh, New Testament to destroy them, but he would buy them for four or five times their value, and the money went back to Tyndale to help him print more. Just kind of weird, but he had to to be accountable. He had to do something. He had to burn something. But in burning them, he actually financed. Well, finally, Tyndale was captured in Bohemia in 1536. Actually, 1535, they held him in prison for 18 months, challenged his life, challenged him to recant uh, his faith, and he wasn't going to do that. They burned him at the stake in October of 1536. But it was then that uh, when they burned him at the stake, they put a piece of wire around his neck. 
And so that his body, as it would, through fatigue throughout the day, while it was burning, he, it would drop, but that wire would strangle him. So he'd have to stand back up to be able to breathe. And finally, they thought he was going to expire, so they took the wire off of, from around his neck so that he could breathe better and burn longer. Sick, depravity. But anyhow, he, um, uh, he stood in one of his final breaths. He made that famous prayer, and I'll quote it just like he said it. He said, Lord, ope the king of England's eyes. The word ope is our word for open. That was his prayer, and then he expired. Well, he didn't die in vain. It wasn't long. Uh, Tyndale's New Testament was being circulated widely. There was a fellow named John Rogers who uh, determined to finish the translation of the Old Testament. Tyndale had actually translated Genesis through um, Deuteronomy, which is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And so Rogers finished the rest of it. And he published it in the name of Matthew's Bible, uh, there's some interesting things about that, but it's done right under the nose of Bishop Tunstall. Uh, Matthew's Bible had strong footnotes in it, and so a fellow named Coverdale was commissioned to remove the footnotes and preserve the text. And uh, when that was done, it was printed in a large size. It became known as the Great Bible. Now, the Great Bible was displayed in every church. The king had made this command that every church, in every little village, in every little valley, Every church would have a copy of this Bible, the the great Bible. And they would put it on display and the doors of the church were to remain open. And those areas where there was illiteracy, there had to be a man standing there that could read the word of God to all those who came in to hear it. All this within three years after Tyndale was dead. I think God heard his prayer. England began to awaken to the truth, but then we go into the tales of Bloody Mary she murdered three or four hundred, I think it was four hundred clergymen, anybody that didn't espouse Catholicism, those who were preaching openly like, like Wycliffe had taught, uh, they were put to death. Four hundred of them. This included Ridley and Latimer. Maybe you read about them in Fox's Book of Martyrs. John Rogers was killed at that time. Uh, many of the Christians f- fled the Puritans, they fled. They fled to Geneva, Switzerland. And they came up with another translation in, the, in 1560 called the Geneva Bible. By the way, that's the Bible that came over on the Mayflower to America. But it was soon replaced by the 1611 King James Bible. But England was sinking because of this corruption. It was sinking into decadence. Uh, the Church of England had long since gone corrupt. The Puritans were trying to purify it. A group of Puritans called the Pilgrims said, no, there's no hope for England, we're leaving. They went to the New World, that's who settled our our nation. But when King James took the throne, I think it was in 1602, I'm not positive of that date, but he he met with the clergy after discussing all these problems. Uh, He met with the clergy in 1602 or 1603. He said, something's got to be done. Our nation is divided and no nation can can stand if we're divided. We have to bring it together. So they had debates and they had questions and they had all kinds of uh, conferences. But one man from Oxford named John Reynolds submitted by a note and one of his servants, a courier, he took the note to the king and said, perhaps 
a true translation, a literal translation of God's word, perhaps that would be what would save our nation and bring the people together to have an unbiased, true translation with no notes, just a pure Bible. And so King James said, let's do that. They started in 1604. They finished the translation in 1610. There's a lot of stuff, a lot of information about the translators. I don't, I don't have time to go into, but in 1611 it was published. It did not unite the nation. It didn't bring the people of England together. But it did give us the greatest piece of literature the English world has ever known. And that's our King James Bible. I trust you'll grow to appreciate it, love it, read it, and tell it.